The storm passes for now. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com, and checking in fresh from Trump-a-palooza this past weekend is Houston Chronicle ace political reporter Jeremy Wallace. Hello, sir. Oh, thank goodness it was about 30 degrees warmer back when that was happening compared to what we're dealing with this weekend, right? Absolutely, so yeah. Uh, let's let's talk about that rally coming up. I think it's uh, one of, if not the most important event of the Republican primary in Texas, if we can get into why in just a little bit. And, you know, we gave a preview on that last week. But of course, right now, top of mind for everybody is this winter storm. And I saw some people saying that they were not, and there's some journalists saying they would not refer to a winter storm by its name. In this case, winter storm Landon, as opposed to winter storm Uri last year in Texas. And I don't I don't really understand why. Some people said they thought that was dumb. All it is is an elegant way to point to one specific weather system, right? So you can compare it to others. And I'm bringing that up for this reason. This storm that we've gone through, and there's still a little bit of it, you know, a little bit of it to play out this weekend, but um, mostly in the rear view at this point, um, was nothing like what we saw in February of last year. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely true. Yeah, this not anywhere close to the depth of cold and the duration of cold. We have two things that we just didn't have this time versus what we had back in February. And people are traumatized by what happened last Fair. February, and <laughs> and I think and I think that any little uh, it, this was not a little storm, but even a little ice storm, uh, the little freeze we had uh, about two weeks ago here, that had people freaked out. Right, people were at uh, the grocery store, they were at the HEB in my neighborhood, uh, you know, not just getting ready for a freeze, but getting ready for a blackout during a freeze. Yeah. Right, I mean that. That's what people are worried about in Texas. And as a friend of mine who works in the electricity business has said, you know, look, Scott, politically, nobody cares about electricity unless it won't turn on or it's too expensive. And in Texas, we now have an environment in which both of those things are concerns, right? We do have increased costs now a little bit uh, because we're now paying for what happened in the last winter storm. And we have people concerned about whether the grid will hold up. And I want to talk about this at a little bit of length because I think it helps to inform the political landscape uh, of this moment and potentially into the general election. Uh, I had people saying to me on Twitter and everywhere else, you know how people like to blast uh, what we do in the media, that we're all liberals or we're all overhyping things or whatever. People were saying, well, I see that y'all are rooting for the grid to fail. And I can't see where anyone in media in Texas really did that. I think people have been trying to Put it in perspective, we do uh, raise the question about whether the failure of the grid would have political consequence for current leadership. And I think that's a fair question, given the fact that we have a uh, an electricity market in the state that is fundamentally unchanged from what we had a year ago. Now, some things are different. Some legislation was passed. The governor has pointed this out over and over again. And you saw where uh, Governor Abbott had previously said he could, quote, guarantee that lights would stay on for people all over Texas. So let me uh, give you some examples of what the governor had previously said about this as people were concerned that with winter coming on, we might have serious problems. In November at a news conference, you will hear the governor answer this question from Christian Flores. He's a reporter at CBS Television in Austin. Governor, last week, NERC, FERC, and ERCOT all released reports saying that the power grid should be okay for a normal winter, but could fail again if there's another extreme 
winter storm like winter storm Yuri. How confident are you the power grid won't fail again like it did last winter? And if it does, would you call a special session for that? So I'm extremely confident uh, that the power grid is stable uh, and resilient and reliable. And I've been working very closely with uh, both the PUC chairman and uh, the head uh, of ERCOT, as well as the team that we've assembled at ERCOT. And if you know all the changes that they have already implemented, as well as additional changes they will continue to implement over the coming weeks, uh, you will know that we will have a very robust, effective, and safe power grid. That's um, pretty confident, but measured, although, Jeremy, he went a lot further, Abbott did, in an interview with Rudy Kosky at Fox 7, also a television station in Austin. Can you give right, a guarantee that the lights are going to stay on? I can guarantee the lights will stay on. That's the kind of thing that gets him into some trouble, right? Because when you say that you can guarantee the lights are going to stay on, well, you have now left uh, the nuance of you know, grid failure versus trees falling in a neighborhood. You've left all that in the rearview mirror now, and you're just saying everything's going to be fine. So it's not that the um, expectation would be there among folks that you, know, you would never have uh, power outages, that you would never have any sort of problem unless you have a governor saying that you're never, ever going to have a problem. Don't you think, uh, Jeremy, that a seasoned politician like Greg Abbott, who's been in office for you know more than 30 decades, or excuse me, not 30 decades, <laughs> 30 years, three decades, yeah, that'd be a long time, wouldn't it? Um, he'd be especially seasoned then. But someone who has had a lot of years in office um, would learn to not say things with such, uh, you know, so definitively, so black and white that he would nuance these things a little bit uh, rather than sort of act like, yeah, I can tell you for sure that nothing bad is ever going to happen. Well, especially since given his background, a lot of his background is in the judiciary and lawyer speak, right? You know, and they're pretty careful with how they say things like that. You wouldn't hear many uh, lawyers guaranteeing anything, right? <laughs> Make sure there's a little caveat just in case it doesn't work out. But, I, you know, the, the, you know, Abbott sometimes in one-on-one interviews you know, will go a little bit further, you know, than maybe he was expecting to, mm -hmm. I think. And that's probably more because he doesn't talk to the media directly one-on-one -on -one nearly as much as a lot of other governors, you know, typically would do. So I think he kind of opens himself up to potential hyperbole that he does not maybe mm -hmm. intend to kind of put out there as a guarantee. But uh, yeah, like you said, it opened them up to like then having to pack in later that like it doesn't mean that there aren't going to be power outages. You know, mm -hmm. it's like and he has to explain like there's still going to be trees down and whatever, and blah, blah, blah. Of course. Right. So earlier this week, he hedged his bets a little bit more, retreating from any kind of guarantee like that. And in fact, he said, no one can make a guarantee like that. And I'm going to make fun of myself for a minute. Even so, even, even, you know, even somebody who's been in office for 30 decades. Well, listen, no, no one, no one can guarantee that there won't be a, quote, uh, load shed event. Uh, but uh, what we will work and strive to achieve and what we're prepared to achieve uh, is that the power is going to stay on across the entire state. So he goes from saying he can guarantee lights will stay on to then saying no one can guarantee that lights will stay on, basically. A, a load shed event simply means uh, that power providers have to, to, they will turn off the power to certain areas because they are trying to balance things out on the grid. Uh, and that, of course, is what people know as a rolling blackout sort of situation, which we have said many times on the show, to our credit, Jeremy, is much more likely during the summer months. Yeah. Right. In, in Texas. Right. We may see uh, something during this uh, winter. We're not done with the winter yet, but, you know, we'll see this. This may be the last uh, big, quote unquote, 
ice event or winter event. Uh, but you could easily see in July and August, uh, as there is more strain on the grid and you may get days where uh, you don't have the wind blowing out in West Texas, uh, that you might have a, a, a situation where there's nothing that else, there's nothing else that can be done other than cutting the power off. And as I was talking to some insiders, uh, it, it became in, uh, in Austin here, it became apparent to me that the fact that the wind was blowing in West Texas was a big benefit uh, for this situation. We were probably going to be okay as far as how much electricity generation there was going to be, but we had a lot more buffer and a lot more wiggle room because we have a uh, complex uh, and um, and robust fuel mix in this state. You've got uh, oil and gas, you got some coal, you've got wind energy, solar, uh, and of course a little bit of nuclear as well. Um, and during the uh, freeze last year, there was a lot of talk about, well, you know, the wind was failing us and natural gas was failing us. Well, that would be one reason to have more sources, right? While you know we have covered, you know, in the meantime, during the legislative debates and the political debates about all of this, there are those who want to sort of run over to one side and say, we only want to have oil and gas. And then on the other side, people will say, no, all renewables. And what a lot of folks have said with a little more uh, even-handed approach is why don't we have all of the above? Because in a storm like we just have gone through and are still, you know, going through the tail end of it here, it's the perfect mix for us is, is, to, is to be ready with all those sorts of uh, ways of uh, getting electricity generated. Yeah, and to make sure there's enough reserve there. That was the problem last time around. We didn't have enough reserve you know, sources because of the fact that so many plants were down, including even the nuclear plant you know, was down for un things unrelated to the weather. But you had a lot of like issues going on in terms of like how much was taken down. And I think the politicians and the, and the power grid operators kind of understood like you just can't you know walk that narrowly anymore you know as we get you know more climate change and you know potential issues so you just got to have more on reserve you know particularly in, for the short memory span you know politicians coming off of last year absolutely you better have more in reserve than you did last year at this time and they succeeded in that right they made sure that mm -hmm. you know they weren't going to have as many you know gas plants you know, on hiatus, they, they were going to make sure that they had access to more you know, nuclear power. And so they mm -hmm. did those things, you know, rightly so, thankfully, so we can kind of at least get through this. Yeah. And here's Abbott talking about it on Thursday ahead of the overnight freeze. And one of in, in Houston, one of the things I was pointing out to people uh, on social media uh, on Thursday is that the reason that the peak demand was hit in Texas on Friday morning, as we're recording here on Friday. It was around uh, 7.30 this morning. They thought it'd be around 8 o'clock. They were pretty close. Uh, that, that during that 7 a.m. hour on Friday, things really got uh, to the top of the demand side of things because the Houston region was then freezing when it had not been on Wednesday and Thursday, right? right. And then you have uh, one of the biggest population, it, the biggest population center in Texas is suddenly freezing as well. So Abbott was talking about what you're saying, which is that they had more in reserve, uh, have more energy in reserve uh, heading into that development overnight uh, from Thursday into Friday. The power grid is performing very well at this time. The expected peak demand, there should be about 10,000 megawatts of extra power capacity. To put that in context, that is uh, about enough extra power to supply about 2 million homes. Beto O'Rourke in the meantime, 
heading out on yet another tour of Texas. He's always traveling the state, Jeremy. Whatever um, banner he wants to put it uh, under, it's his thing. He tours Texas all the time. And this one is about keeping the lights on and putting a focus on the grid. Uh, here's Beto in San Antonio, where he said it was starting to get a little cold and wet on Thursday. And where we are also seeing reports of some power outages throughout the community. That seems to be happening in other parts of Texas right now. So I just wanted to reach out and ask everyone to be safe, to look out for one another, and to make sure that we respect first responders and local leaders as they try to protect their communities. Beto wants to make the case that not enough has been done to address electricity issues in Texas. This is something that uh, Governor Abbott's uh, GOP primary opponents also want to make a case on. But when you look at what just happened with this storm, is it pretty much a big nothing for them to be making that argument? Well, you could say a few things about it. Number one, I think that Democrats and uh, some folks uh, in the media play into this narrative that, and I think people have been thinking about this maybe sort of in the wrong way, which is that, you know, either the grid works or it doesn't work, right? And, and, and so if the grid works, then Republicans have the advantage. If it doesn't work, then Democrats have the advantage. Uh, but I think it's more complicated than that. It's, it's been Absolutely. interesting to watch this. It's been interesting to watch this uh, debate play out uh, when people who were uh, working on the legislation to address this last year, Jeremy, would tell you that, the, and I mean, people who are lawmakers, their staffers, uh, people who lobby on behalf of the energy industry, etc. They would say this is such a complicated thing. The, the electricity, getting somebody to explain the electricity market to you in Texas, it would take a while. You remember, you remember listening to the floor debates and the very long hearings in Texas House State Affairs on this, where I think the chairman, uh, who's now retiring from uh, the House State Affairs Committee, Chris Patty, I, I think he was taking a long time with it because he wanted to make sure that they were really getting into the weeds of what is really happening here. Um, and so, look, if you have electricity that's more expensive, as I mentioned, because we're still paying for some of what happened with the winter storm last year, um, and you do have this sense of PTSD with people that maybe the power is not going to work, where the governor gets himself into trouble is to say, is to say that I can guarantee the lights will stay on. Even if you do, and that's why at subsequent news conferences, the governor has to say, now look, if a tree falls or some limbs fall in your neighborhood and, and your lights go out because of that, that's not my fault. And that's not a failure of the grid. That's a failure locally. And you need to call your local energy provider about that. And I saw where some people were sort of uh, explaining to folks in a condescending way that if, if your electricity goes off, well, that's not a failure of the grid. That, that, that's not the fault. You know, that's not the fault of the uh, Electric Reliability Council of Texas. But people don't see it that way. Just average people, if their power is out, their power is out. They don't they don't care about all the rest of this. Right. So from the perspective of a person who is impacted by it, like, say, the person that you reported on uh, who slipped in the ice and died, you know, north of Houston last year trying to get uh, an oxygen tank. Right. A, a veteran who was who was trying to get the spare oxygen out of his truck. He passes away. In that situation, most folks would think it's pretty simple. His power was out. And I don't care about the rest of all of this. But the truth is that it is a very complicated thing to go from the wind turbines in West Texas to a coal-fired plant to, uh, to our natural gas-fired plants and all of that to get that from where it's generated to your house and everything that happens around that. The regulation that happens around that, um, you know, the technology that it takes to make all that happen, 
uh, is very complicated. Uh, and that's why some folks can get away with, uh, you know, with saying things that either aren't true or aren't completely true, or they can certainly spin it however they want. But I think at least for right now, in my mind, it's fair to say that Republicans have won the framing on this, that they're victorious on framing this up as, look, the grid is fine. And so we did our job and we shouldn't be punished for this. And I think the Democrats right now are kind of backing off, at least right now, backing off this idea that they need to be harping on the grid, um, you know, as being a big campaign issue. We'll see, you know, in the, in the weeks and months to come. But if they keep saying that, oh, yeah, we got to fix the damn grid and Republicans have been successful in laying the foundation that, hey, the grid is just fine, then what are they talking about? Yeah, and I think the one thing that does benefit the Democrats is, is kind of what you said, that PTSD, that anxiety that people had was this you know crazy reminder of what we went through last year, right? You know, it was like I, I rolled my eyes when I first talked to the Beto O'Rourke campaign when they said, oh, we're going to do a tour of Texas and talk about the power grid. And I'm like, all right, whatever. They want to remind people of something that happened a year ago. You know, well, they didn't have to you know even start the tour before we all got that reminder of the garbage we went through, right? You know, and if you lost power for a lengthy period of time, or in my case, my plumbing, you know, went you know to heck in a handbasket, right? You know, so and so I ended up in the situation where I was watching my pipes like a hawk. <laughs> I was making sure everything was dripping, constantly checking every freaking faucet in mm -hmm. the house. And so I think you know that anxiety though is kind of what Democrats. You know, I don't want to say hope for, but the, the weather actually did for them what they were wanting to do, which is try to remind people of all that. Well, the weather already did that. It reminded us of uh, how terrible this is and how even with the, quote, fixes to the grid, there's still a ton of anxiety about the grid. And, you know, if the Aurora campaign and other Democrats, if they can fashion an argument, which I think I don't know if they've actually hit it yet, which is trying to fashion that argument of like, if I'm elected, you're not going to have to worry about the grid. You know, like you uh -huh. can go on with your life. We're going to make sure we're not going to be in the pocket of the oil companies or the energy companies. We're going to make them do things, you know, to make sure we never, ever have that happen again. You know, so I think I, I think in that way, I think the weather kind of did for the Democrats, at least the reminder they needed. Thankfully, the grid held together. And like, I certainly think anybody who was thinking that, you know, members of the media or, you know, Democrats were rooting for the grid to fail. Boy, that's a, that's right. a tough thing to say. Cause I can't imagine anybody wants to see a repeat of what happened in February when we know at right. least 200 people died, you know, it could be 700 people from some of the, uh, the totals we've seen out there, but certainly we know of people like, like Mr. Anderson, the veteran you were talking about who died yeah. in his truck looking for an oxygen tank, you know, because his power was gone. You know, those are yeah, the people just, that like, you know, I can't get that out of my head. Mm -hmm. I can't get my that 11-year-old boy up in Montgomery County as like who froze to death. It's like, how do you forget those things? You know, it's like, we're never going to forget that. And I don't need the Democrats to remind me of it. Right. <laughs> it's like, and there's nothing they can do to fix the grid that will make me forget that. And I think yeah, a lot I, of people are going to be like that, at least for the next year or two. I don't think any of those memories are going to be too far away from folks every time we have a power issue. Yeah, I can see that. I, I think uh, when I say that I think Republicans have at least for now been successful in framing this up uh, the way that they would like to talk about it. Um, what I mean is that uh, to your point, if the if the general consensus out there among among you know our listeners and all in Texans at large, if the general consensus is that hey, what happened last February was a horrible thing, but it's just a one time thing, and if it happens again, 
then I'll want to punish people, then Republicans win in that argument, right? If the if the argument is that, or the general consensus is that, hey, that never ever should have happened in the first place, and I'm not going to get over that it happened in the first place, then that's the advantage of whoever's challenging the leadership who's in office at the time. And that's not necessarily even partisan, right? Yeah. If it was Democrats in office, Correct. if it was Democrats in office when that happened last February, people might just be in the uh, mood to punish them, whoever it is. Republicans are in office now, and so they might break out the uh, the pitchforks and the, and the torches to go after the Republicans because they are the ones who are in charge. And all of the polling that I have seen so far um, uh, among some of the, uh, the private polling I've looked at um, across demographic groups, in Texas, and, and I mean, you know, young, old, um, every ethnicity, break it down by, you know, college educated and not, um, the grid is number two or three yeah. as, as a priority <laughs> for all voters in, in all demographics. And, you know, you don't have to, um, you know, go very far out into just venture out into the real world and try to uh, buy a generator in Texas. You can't get one, right? I mean, the, you can't. They're all sold out. Now, part of that, of course, is you have supply chain issues. You know, creating uh, more uh, more of a situation with that. Uh, but it is a real thing that people are very concerned about it. And here's an open question: I don't know if what happened, and this always happens with the weather. As somebody who covered severe weather for a living for years uh, as a broadcast journalist, uh, especially in Houston, but also in Dallas, Fort Worth, in Houston, we'd, we'd be dealing with uh, with hurricanes. In DFW, we deal with tornadoes and snowstorms um, because people forget that DFW is the southern end of uh, of, uh, of Tornado Alley. Um, and as someone who did that for years, it's always the case that whatever the last big weather event was sets the tone for how people react to the next one. Yeah. So when uh, Hurricane Katrina came ashore back in 2005, the year before, there had been a hurricane that a lot of people – uh, evacuated from New Orleans ahead of a, uh, ahead of that hurricane, and then it didn't really impact New Orleans, and people thought they wasted their time. And so one reason a lot of people didn't leave New Orleans ahead of Katrina was because of that. They were hearing the forecasts about, oh, Katrina is going to hit New Orleans; it's going to be it's going to be horrific. And they thought, well, no, I got on the road last year and nothing happened. Like, why yeah. why do I care about this? Um, and so same thing with this: if you have a what is billed as a big ice storm. And then really there's not much impact from it. People kind of calm down and it, in some ways it helps to relieve that PTSD that they had from the one before. But then when they hear forecasters next time tell them, oh, there's a big storm coming, you got to get ready for it. They'll be a little more lax than they would have otherwise been if there hadn't been a storm that was not as severe in the meantime. Um, so it was a huge weekend in Houston. You had the big rally uh, at Toyota Center. You had the... What did y'all call it in the Chronicle? Coachella for Republicans Yep. up in Montgomery County. And it really did sound that way. Let's go Trump. Let's go Trump. Let's go Trump. Let's go Trump. So there's Governor Abbott leading a chant. I'm trying to remember if I ever heard him leading a chant before in his entire, I'm going to stick with my theme of making fun of myself, in, in, in his entire 30 decades in office. <laughs> I have never Heard him doing that. Um, tell me about the crowd that was there. This was the big event where you had so many Republican uh, office holders in Texas, especially those who have the Trump seal of approval. Right, his uh, his endorsees in Texas were on stage with former President Trump, 
for what I kept billing as Trumpapalooza there in Montgomery County, Jeremy. What was it like? Yeah, you know, we're going to remember this is just the second MAGA rally of you know 2022, and it's only I think it's number eight uh, since he you know lost the White House, and so it's like you know there's a lot of like. Uh, supply and demand issue going right you know not as much you know supply of it so the demand goes way up so these rallies right now we saw it in Arizona we saw it in Conroe this weekend are producing a lot of people showing up people who thought these were done and now are getting a chance to kind of relive it and uh, what I've been you know as I mentioned uh, I compared it to a a kind of a music festival Uh, and a lot of the people you're seeing coming you know from they're coming from all over the place I did a whole story Mm -hmm. on just uh, these guys who come from like Ohio and Michigan and they come to, you know, they've been to like 20 or 30 or 40. I met one guy who, who's on number 50. You know, been to, is going to his 50th Trump rally. Yeah. And I said, boy, that seems like a lot. And he pointed to a guy over there on the side goes, he's been to 78. It's like they've been to so many of these rallies. It's, it <laughs> yeah. reminded me much of like it's a little bit before my time, uh, but the, uh, the the Grateful Dead and the Deadheads uh-huh. who would travel the country looking for a party, you know, trying to kind of, you know, just being, you know, more for the environment, you know, not that the Grateful Dead weren't great musicians. Nobody, mm-hmm. you know, hate Twitter me at all. But but still, a lot of it, the people will. who went to those things were going for the feel and, you know, the ability to be around like-minded people who weren't going to criticize you for, you know, smoking marijuana or having tattoos or having piercings and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much like at the Trump rallies. You know, what you have is like you have all these folks gathering from all these different places and like the speech is important, but more important to them is the camaraderie of being around mm-hmm. other like-minded people where they're waving flags, wearing their MAGA hats, nobody's yeah. wearing masks, nobody's like getting on them for any of that stuff. I had this one guy tell me, it's like, I can finally like be myself. I can let my guard down. You know, it's like, I'm just yeah. among other people, you know, who are like me. And so they go for this camaraderie. And so when you see, when you see like twenty to thirty thousand people there, like my, I estimated, um, then you know probably a third of those are people who aren't from the area. You know, some of them might be from other far flung parts of Texas, uh, but certainly a lot of people coming in from other states. They even have like a little RV park that they create right. at these things, where there'll be like a couple hundred RVs who camp out days in even a week before Trump ever gets to them because they want to make sure they've got their spot so they can be up close, you know, to when you know, Trump um, speaks. It's just, it's a wild experience. <laughs> if you haven't been to one and you know, it's like, it's, it's it, it was certainly an insight into how these things are like, are much bigger than what uh, like a political rally would be. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, throw that away. This is more of like, uh, you know, it reminded me a lot of Lollapalooza in its early days. Yeah. You know, I went to a Lollapalooza in 94 and it's like, it had that same kind of feel, but from the very far right, <laughs> you know, yeah, it was right. like, it was well, like you, campsites and hippies kind of like feel to it. But imagine if the hippies are now all wearing red hats to say, make America great again. <laughs> yeah. Well, a more current example might be uh fish heads. People travel around following fish. Yeah. The band yeah. all over the place. The same thing, you know. They, uh, I know people who, uh, you know, have uh, one person I know was uh, uh, watching them in uh, Arkansas, you know, a few months ago, and then went to go find them in Vegas, uh, you know, a few weeks. It's like they just traveled around yeah. with the band. Very and, similar and to what these. Trump why it's the same sort of same sort of thing, right? So, what do they line up for? Ever and it's the same thing with a Trump speech, right? It's it's like he's kind of doing the same song as always, but he's uh, he's like like a jam band. Yeah. He's just going on and on. He's just riffing. 
right? He's it's basically the same material, but he just keeps on going. Yeah, they, they all just want to hear point, Freebird, you know, sung live, and then just like you just got to make sure you play Freebird, you know, which in this case is the election was stolen. <laughs> yep, you know, I was robbed. Wall, Joe Biden's a crook. Stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's once the Freebird of that, Trump rallies. Well, once you've heard all that, you can kind of leave before the before the speech is over, right? I mean, you might have twenty more minutes to go in the event, and people will start making for the doors because they've heard it all. So, what kind of uh, speechifying were they treated to? Let's give you a sense of it. Our agriculture commissioner, the first endorsee up here in our in our lineup, uh, Sid Miller, was there on stage, and he said that he has come to an important conclusion about this election. You know, I've decided that this election, this midterm election in the following 2024, it's no longer about Republicans and Democrats. It's no longer about conservatives and socialists. You know what it boils down to, folks? It's a, it's a race between patriots and traitors. It's that simple. Uh, perhaps the most dynamic speaker at the event was our attorney general, Ken Paxton, who said that Biden is really screwing up this country. Can't we go back to the good old days when President Trump was there in Washington? All you have to do is remember one year ago today when our world was a different place. And you know what that world was like under Donald Trump. Low inflation. We were we had Afghanistan under control. China feared us. The border was under control. I'll cut him a little slack, but one year ago on the day he said it, President Biden was already in office. Yeah. Is is that correct? So but but you know, he might mean that Biden had an he had not had any time yet to mess up all those things, Jeremy. Yeah, and, and I'm no speech expert. You know, I don't know how to deliver a, a scintillating speech. You've watched speech. a lot of this, though. Yeah, but if you listen to that, you know, <laughs> what he just said there, there's no applause line. You know, people – like, he literally has, like, almost twenty to 30,000 people, and he's getting a gentle, like, you know, nice shot on your approach shot on the green. You know, it's just like, at what point do you, like – Fire up the crowd, you know. Really it's, like, it's funny if you yeah. listen to all the different speeches. Like Paxton's was just like so like low key. I can't imagine main people left there remembering what Ken Paxton said. You know, it's kind of what an opportunity break. for him to really kind of grab hold. And as we met, you know, as you played that Greg Abbott speech from earlier, you know, it's like you know, I counted. He said Trump's name twenty seven times in that six minutes. <laughs> right. Um, with Paxton, and I'll get to a little bit more on Abbott in a second. With Paxton. Um, you know, I covered him when he was uh, a state representative and a state senator. And what I can tell you about his time in the Senate is I don't remember it. He, he didn't yeah. say anything, give any speeches that were very interesting. He's one of those guys who sort of, and this happens a lot uh, in the world of, um, I wouldn't only say it happens in right-wing politics, but it happens in, that, uh, in that, that part of politics a lot, is that the blanker a page is, the more other people can write on it. And so with, with Paxton, not much personality. Um, you know, these, these third party groups that helped to uh, prop him up, like Empower Texans, for example, which uh, gave him, they collateralized a million dollar loan when he was running in the, uh, in the primary uh, for attorney general uh, in the statewide primary. Um, and you know, they did a lot of propping the guy up. There, there's just not a lot that's all that personable about the guy. You would wonder why would, uh, you know, people who are otherwise so fired up, those deadheads, those fishheads, the people who are there for Trump, why would they so support Paxton. Well, in a lot of ways, it's because Trump is writing what he wants on the guy on that blank page, 
which is, you know, this is my guy. This is the yep. this is the guy who supported me. This is the guy who filed the you know lawsuit to try to overturn the election on my behalf. He was a guy who was there at uh, at the riot, the insurrection uh, in Washington, January sixth, and so his whole persona kind of becomes about being you know a, a firebrand conservative. When you actually hear him speak, he's he's not really. Yeah, correct. It's interesting. <laughs> it was right. just so um, so low key for for what that audience and I'll cut them yeah. some slack. And it's like for a lot of the people who were who, even if you've given a hundred speeches before, there is nothing like getting to the podium at a Trump rally and looking out at that sea of people. You know, you see politicians all the time. Some really freeze up, and some like just get low key, and others know kind of how to do it. You know, how to play yeah. the game and get them kind of going in your favor. Paxton, you can see, it's like, I think he was like, he probably looked down that crowd and like gave a little swallow and said, whoa, that's a lot of people. <laughs> well, you heard uh, Sid Miller there was really firing yeah. them up. Now, for, for another contrast with Miller, uh, someone who Miller has really criticized uh, over the last, really the last two years and, and even more after the, the big freeze uh, in February of last year, Governor Abbott had his chance at this rally and he did not get the warmest of welcomes. I'm not saying that everybody hated him or anything, but there were plenty of people in the crowd who were not pleased with Governor Abbott and his performance. And remember, these are their, you know, these are people who are there to see former President Trump. So these are dedicated Republicans. I got the sense that Abbott is more there for them than anybody is there in the crowd for Abbott. Is you know, I, that's kind of my read of it. Listen to this as he is brought out on the stage. You can immediately tell he's got some hecklers. And please welcome the governor of the great state of Texas, Greg Abbott. Donald J. Trump loves the great state of Texas. Donald J. Trump! Donald J. Trump! Our President Donald J. Trump. Donald J. Trump! President Trump! President Trump! Another thing about President Trump! President Trump! President Trump! President Trump! President Trump! And President Trump! President Trump! Let's go Trump! Jeremy, I got the sense that uh, he might have been told uh, by his uh, political advisors that if they start to boo you, which of course, based on what we talked about on the show last week, they had to anticipate some of that, right? That there are people in the Republican Party who are very upset with Abbott for a variety of reasons. Um, I got the sense that maybe his top consultant, Dave Carney, might have just whispered in Abbott's ear, hey, if they start to boo you, just say Trump's name over and over again to kind of drown that out. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at that. You know, like from where I, my vantage point further in, it's like I heard a little smattering of the boos and the complaints, but not, yeah, he got a lot warmer welcome or uh, not hostile you know, reception that I, I was looking for. I was trying to figure out like what yeah. kind of response he was going to get. And I thought it was going to be like, you know, I was really kind of putting an ear out for the booze and I didn't hear nearly as many. Obviously you heard mm -hmm. some of it in that clip, uh, but it certainly wasn't as widespread as it could have been. Uh, yeah. And I think that's, you know, you know, being in Montgomery County, you got to remember where we were, you know, that's one of the counties where the Republican executive committee censured him you know, for the way he handled the, you know, pandemic. And so he certainly has some detractors in that crowd. And so there, there may be some pretty loud op opposition in that group. Uh, but I think by and large, again, because it's a Trump rally, I think, you know, if he's good enough for Trump, 
You know, Abbott got to show at least 30,000 people maybe in that crowd that he and Trump are kind of on the same page. So vote for me. Well, and I think this is um, this is why the Texas primary on the Republican side may well be the best test of the influence of former President Trump uh, with the Republican base, because he's done a lot of endorsements in other places and has had sort of a mixed record, although I think for those that he has endorsed, they've done pretty well in Republican primaries, right? I mean, that, that's fair to say. Um, but with Abbott, the, the three guys you just heard, with Abbott, Miller, and Paxton, they all have vulnerabilities with Republicans that otherwise might leave them really open to a serious challenge in their primaries. Um, Abbott, for some of the reasons that you stated, right? The people uh, in the Republican Party very upset with him about pandemic restrictions and and other things. Uh, the things that Don Huffines and Alan West, his two top challengers, I guess I would say, uh, things that they brought up over and over again. With Sid Miller, He's got all these questions about ethics surrounding him, right? And and he's being dogged by his uh, his GOP primary opponent James White about about that. Um, with Paxton, he's got just about every personal legal issue that you could possibly have and still be in office, <laughs> and the potential of a federal indictment coming as soon as this year with the FBI investigating him and everything. But here's the deal: with all three of those guys, despite those challenges. They could all win with no runoff because they all have multiple challengers, right? They could all win with no runoff on March 1st, in large part, if not solely because Trump drapes his arm around those people yeah. and says, these are my guys. Yeah, that's a very important point. I think – imagine the scenario in which Trump didn't support you know, one of those three or went with their opponent. It certainly would give – you know, it make the entire March 1st primary look – lot more you know shaky for any of those people like you know obviously in the case of abbott you know with huffines and west is if either one of them had been able to convince the trump people to swing to him and we heard it earlier in the show like earlier this month uh or you know, i guess now last month of, of you know groups trying to get you know uh, pressure trump to change his endorsement well it just didn't happen and it's not going to happen and abbott's now can put this on air you know, anywhere he goes and say, look, you know, it's like, I'm just telling you, I've done exactly what Trump wanted me to do. And I've been with him in the border. And wasn't he a great president? Or in this case, say the word Trump 27 times in six minutes. <laughs> well, the, I was also telling folks that that's my favorite stat of the Republican primary. You know, we like to slice and dice elections. Or we think about, you know, the way that certain people are going to vote or we see different uh, patterns develop in polling. You know, maybe with this group of people, it's 37 percent of this did that. Or with that group of people, it's 48 percent of so and so did that. The best stat of the GOP primary in Texas so far is Trump's name 27 times in six yeah. minutes. And it could have been 29 times if they hadn't put like a microphone, uh, a carry microphone, you know, in, you know, uh, Governor Abbott's hand and then make yeah. him use his wheelchair to kind of get around the, the stage. And so like he couldn't talk and hold the microphone and do the wheelchair all at the same time. So there was right. like at least two or three more like potential, you know, Trumps that he wasn't even able to get out. <laughs> Thanks to the Trump. Trump, 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 yep. Trump, 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 Trump. <laughs> yeah. That could have basically been the entire speech. Now, of course, one of the darlings of the crowd, and nobody at that crowd is going to in that crowd is going to boo this guy, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. He was there as Trump's man in Texas. You know, Sid Miller tries to sort of vie for that position, but it's really Patrick. Yeah. And the evidence was on on stage that he's really Trump's guy. Of course, Patrick talked about how great he thinks Trump is, and he added this about the former president. That's who we need to come back again in 2024. 
Now, I don't know what he's going to do, but you can all let him know. Or maybe before, is that right? But this to explain, but he says that maybe the president uh, could come back and run again 2024 once again, uh, be the chief uh, chief executive officer of these United States. Um, and then the crowd wants him faster than that. There is this theory out there, of course, Jeremy, that Trump might be uh, reinstalled as president. That could happen any day. Yeah. We've heard it ever since. We've heard it ever since Biden was sworn into office. And and you hear Patrick feeding right into that. And he says, or he could come back faster than that, right? And he's giving thumbs up to the crowd. There was also a portion of Patrick's speech where um, the crowd starts chanting, and you were there so you could probably hear it better than we could uh, watching on the live feed. The, the crowd was chanting something like, fix 2020, yeah, fix 2020. Right. You know, they, they want to go back and... Um, you know, go back to the 2020 election and and just declare that Trump won the thing. Um, and Patrick asks the crowd, he says, well, we know who really won, right? And of course, when the crowd says that Trump won, he gives them a big thumbs up. And Patrick is so deliberate. It's amazing that he's not an attorney. You know, we got Ted Cruz, very deliberate in his speech, as has been pointed out by Tucker Carlson. We've got Abbott, who's very deliberate in his speech, right? Another attorney. Patrick, he, he says we know who won, right? The crowd says Trump. He gives a thumbs up. So as a journalist, if you were to ask him later about him suggesting that Trump really won, he could say, I never said that, right? Yeah. I, I know how Patrick thinks. Uh, after the speech, Patrick was interviewed on, not on Fox News Channel, but on Newsmax, where they talked to him about Trump possibly running again. One of the things you mentioned, though, you said the 45th and 47th president. Yes, yes. I'm sure you saw that video clip, didn't you? Yes, yes, I did. I had lunch with the president today. We had a little gathering of about a dozen of us. And I was his campaign manager in 16 and 20 here in Texas. And so we got our, our group together. And I had heard about the clip. And then it came up today. And I said, Mr. President, 45, 47, it sounds like you've already kind announced, of right? you know, announced, you know, and, and look, this is the biggest red county in America, a county of more than 100,000 people or more with the highest support for Trump, over 70 percent. And these people are just this is Trump country. And, and, you know, we John, we are in a situation where the left and this is not hyperbole, right, where the left truly has a plan to change America to a socialist country. And we have two elections to stop at 22 and 24. Everything, you know, Ronald Reagan, I said in my speech, Ronald Reagan said, liberty and freedom are only one generation from extinction. That we don't pass it on through the bloodstream to our children. We have to teach it to them, protect it, and fight for it, and for them to pass it on. Otherwise, in the sunset of our lives, we will sit and talk to our children's children about an America where men and women used to be free. Now, do you get the sense, Jeremy, that when Sid Miller says, and, and I'm going to ask you this because you were there watching the crowd, when Sid Miller says this is really a contest, not between Democrats and Republicans, but between patriots and traitors, and Patrick says what you just heard him say in the Newsmax interview, which is, if Republicans don't win the next two elections, when we're all old and gray, we're going to talk to our kids about, you know, back in the day, the socialists took over, and that's why we live in this socialist country now. Do you get the sense that the people who are in that crowd, are there more for the entertainment value? Uh, because I know there's some who are. 
Uh, more of them are there for the entertainment value of a Trump rally and the sort of the camaraderie that goes along with all of that. Um, or do you get the sense that more of them are there with this sort of uh, idea that uh, the situation is as dire as it has ever been? And if we can't win these elections, then the country is just not the country that uh, that I grew up in. And I look at the fact, and numbers have been run on this, by the way, for the folks who were arrested uh, in connection with the riots and insurrection on January 6th uh, of last year, uh, that's, that a lot of those people who were arrested are uh, Anglo Americans who are from largely from communities that are rapidly changing. Right, where they have seen demographic changes happen quickly. like So places like uh, Collin County and Denton County and Fort Bend County and a lot of places in Texas. Um, and you do have a – and I was talking with some uh, Republican uh, folks, some, uh, some of my Republican friends, and said, look, it may not be any particular policy that is being implemented by state government, although we did see a very, as you pointed out, just conservative red meat buffet legislative session last year. It may not be – open carry or constitutional carry specifically, or the abortion law that was passed, and now we have all the controversy about it, uh, the attacks on transgender children and all this stuff. It, it may not be that it's any one of those policies that is the thing uh, that's moving the needle about what I'm talking about, but it is sort of cumulative, cumulatively all this stuff that says to someone who is genuinely very concerned in a, in a very extreme sort of way about the country that state government is sort of taking that person who I think anybody, a lot of these people who are extremists and kind of wrapping them in a warm blanket and saying, hey, you're our person. Yeah. You're our base. We love you. Do, do you get the sense that the people who are there really do view it as this fight between good and evil, or is it more of a thing where they're there to be entertained? Well, or it's interesting. Both? So the, the folks I talked to, and you'll see them in the story I wrote, uh, you know, in the Houston Chronicle for that Sunday. Um, but if you look back at it, you'll see like a lot of the guys I talked to were like they're working class people. They're from industrial areas. They're kind of like what you're talking about. They're they're, they're they're white middle aged men who you know don't like the direction of the country. And what was interesting to me, like, and I heard multiple times. Probably I ended up doing like probably eight or nine interviews. Uh, uh, with different people and every single one of them unprovoked said you know how could he have lost when we have crowds this big there's no way he could possibly have lost biden couldn't get this crowd so it's this like equating the size of the crowd and the passion for trump as he must have won then you know and the, and they're and they're absolutely convinced themselves that's you know that can't be it's like which like raises the question though so if rihanna has you know more people to show up to her show than say the beatles ever did does that mean rihanna's the best you know is better than the beatles it's like and mm -hmm. they and their kind of argument yeah it probably means that you know but of course right. they probably wouldn't want to phrase it that way but in this case sure. you know they see this trump rally and all those people there and i just kept hearing people say there's no way he lost look at this and and it's hard to explain to them that you know this is like thirty thousand people in a state of you know 29 million people you know that means right. there's another 29 million people who aren't here who don't maybe look like you or think like you or talk like you. So it's just, it's, it's kind of a hard thing to kind of grasp that, I think, for a lot of folks. And it, cause it's a big picture kind of thought. And so I heard a lot of people like, and they do, I think there is a little bit of that, that 
good and evil they see happening. Like they're just trying to do what's right for the country. I had one guy, I had one guy from Conroe who was at his first rally. He said, so why are you here? And he goes, well, I'm doing my part to show that, you know, you know, we care about our country and about, you know, patriotism and our soldiers and our police. And so they see like this right and wrong part that's happening. And they think the Democrats are, you know, taking us, particularly Joe Biden, in some direction that is the antithesis of what they believe in. So whether or not it's true or not, you know, that's another debate altogether. But mm-hmm. that's what they see right now. You go to these rallies, they see Trump is supporting the patriots and people like Biden are traitors to whatever this cause is. Yeah, and it's hard to figure out where it goes from here for the, for this reason, because I think, and I have thought and talked to, uh, with a lot of folks about this for, for years now, and as we have lived in the uh, under the Trump administration and, and in, the, in the politics that the Trump administration left us, which also leaves us with Trump going around and doing these rallies and still being very much a political force when a former president um, has never really had this sort of a role, no, right? In, definitely in, not. In, in shaping a political party, usually it's just the case. I mean, it's always been the case that once the person loses, they're just a loser and they brush them to the side and they move on. When John McCain lost, Republicans didn't you know, hang on to that forever. When John Kerry lost, Democrats didn't hang on to that forever. Once President Obama is gone, he's still got a role in the Democratic Party or George W. Bush is gone. They have a role in the party, but they kind of move to the back, uh, you know, and let the new leaders emerge. And that's just not happening now. But I've talked a lot about this idea that you do have this sort of emerging and very much on display um, group that you were covering there in Montgomery County on Saturday. But then you also have this other interesting group, and it's borne out by numbers. It's not just me thinking it. Um in 2018 and 19, and I'm take Texas specifically, but but a version of this happened all over the country. Um, in 2018, you had Lieutenant Governor Patrick in the general election, um, really pushing some more mainstream ideas in his reelection effort, like pay raises for teachers, reaching out to the middle, the people who that has broad support, left and right. People say, yeah. The teachers ought to make more money. Um, in 2019, you see a Texas legislature that's very focused on bread and butter issues, right? I mean, you know, school finance and property taxes, things that have broad appeal. And in these elections in 2018, you had 500,000 people or so who were willing to vote for Beto O'Rourke, but then for Greg Abbott and other Republicans, right? In 2020, you saw a slimmer margin for Trump in Texas, winning by only six points. And yet, Jeremy, somehow Republicans down ballot did very well all over the place in state house races, state Senate, congressional races. None of them changed from a partisan standpoint in that election. That means you have to have a lot of people who are open to voting for Republicans in almost every office except for the presidency. With Trump. So there are a lot of folks who I think are maybe, and you know, some people are new to politics, but, but you know, folks who are uh, a more veteran in politics who are probably more likely to be Republicans, but they're repulsed by what you're talking about with the Trump phenomenon. And so I don't know. And now, so for example, in our election this year, in 2022, I don't know how they'll vote for governor because now they can't pick both Governor uh, Abbott and Beto. They have to pick one of them, right? Because now they're running against each other. I don't know where that group of maybe sort of a moderate force really ends up. Uh, But I don't think that Democrats should read too much into it and think that, wow, these are a bunch of liberals because they're not that. Otherwise, they're voting for Republicans other than Trump. 
I don't know how they vote if you have uh, an election in which you have someone who's sort of Trump-like, like a Ron DeSantis or somebody like that. Uh, it's not Trump, but someone who has some of his characteristics and certainly supports a lot of the policies of Trump. In Texas, I don't know how those people vote, uh, probably for the Republican, but maybe not. There's maybe some opportunity for Democrats there, but Democrats shouldn't assume that these are a bunch of liberals, a bunch of progressives. They're not that. They're people who are open to voting for Republicans, just not Trump. At the same time, you have all those Trump loyalists who think all Democrats are evil. Yeah, exactly. And and, and there's a big difference between presidential election cycles and gubernatorial cycles typically in Texas. You know, you know, and I think Republicans generally have planned for, okay, look, the, the turnout's gonna drop in the midterm election. Uh, and that means it's like we're gonna be more like you're gonna have more intense of a base out there. So you wanna appeal to them. And so that's why you see like in those years in gubernatorial cycles, the legislature session beforehand is a lot more mm -hmm. red meat type of things. That's when you're gonna see more abortion issues and bathroom bills type things happening versus 2019 headed into a presidential election, you're assuming that there's going to be more, you know, more general voters, you know, people who don't vote in every election and you want to make sure you kind of swing in them. So, Hey, we were for schools. We fixed the roads. We did these things. You want to appeal to those guys. And, but so, but the 2018 cycle threw us in a loop, right? Cause Beto O'Rourke, you know, helps charge up the electorate and we get almost like a presidential turnout. And so now we're, we're I think we're all going into this kind of blind, you know, including the, the seasoned politicians, you know, and their strategists are all going into this going, boy, if this is like 2018, how do we prepare for that? You know, it's mm -hmm. like, do we, you know, have to be more general in our message and, and have we gone too far with like, the red meat issues. It's like, that's going to be a question down the road. You know, typically I think what they did is like the best way to win in Texas in a midterm mm -hmm. election cycle. But I yeah. think in this mm -hmm. case, if Beto's bringing, you know, four to 5 million voters to the party, it's like, it's a totally different kind of ball game. But the question, can he again bring four to 5 million people to the you know polls like he did in 2018? That was life changing. I don't think people understand how much more dramatic of a turnout that was in any midterm mm -hmm. in the history of Texas. You know, Democrats had never come close to bringing up that, have that kind of turnout before. Right. And will right. that replicate it? Or was that just a one-off? It's like, that's a really big question for anybody who makes their living in politics right now going into this cycle. Yeah. And I think one of the thing about that is, look, you have, to your point, presidential level turnout in, a, in an off year in Texas in 2018. Question, is that because of the excitement around Beto O'Rourke or... Is that about backlash to President Trump in office during his midterm? It yep. can be a mix of both, right? And because we don't really know what people think about Trump's role now in the Republican Party, do you have a scenario in which this election sort of runs like a general election um, because Trump has so much backlash to him if he still wants to be the head of the Republican Party? Do people think of it that way or – is it more traditional sort of an environment where people say, no, there's a Democrat in the White House. And I mean, I think it's, it's an open question. There's a Democrat in the White House. And so that just means any real backlash is to the Democrat in the White House, right? Which that adds up to a terrible election for Democrats in this state. Um, or is it just a mix of all of the above? And we have, like you said, no idea how <laughs> this is going to turn out. Did you see that uh, Harris County Judge Lena Hidalgo was accused of disrespecting an officer in Houston, in Harris County, um, and that she was disrespectful was the allegation uh, at the um, officer's funeral. 
This is from uh, Fox 26 in Houston. I read from the story by Greg Grugan. So there are few services more somber and more sacred than those honoring a fallen officer. And yet the funeral of slain Corporal Charles Galloway with Harris County Precinct 5 Constable now lies under a shroud of controversy with County Judge Lena Hidalgo being accused of being the investigator. Now, I didn't notice this story until it was tweeted out by little Governor Dan Patrick, who was there, and he was invited by the family. That is what has been uh, reported. And he was therefore one of the dignitaries who was in the front of the funeral as they're presenting the flag to the family and all of that. And Judge Hidalgo was also there in the front with standing right next to Dan Patrick uh, as this funeral is unfolding. And there were other dignitaries there as well, I think, including the mayor of Houston, Sylvester Turner, and some other people. It's a normal thing, Jeremy, for, for years. I, I, I'm going to make this point. For years, when an officer uh, dies for whatever reason, the leadership of the county and the city, they come together to honor that person's life. And I don't remember it being politicized quite in this way that I'm seeing right now. I think this is why this is interesting and important. Um, Patrick said on Twitter that Judge Hidalgo's behavior was inexcusable, that she was disrespectful because she wouldn't go to the back and sit in the back of the tent at the funeral the way other dignitaries were doing. That's what Patrick said. Now, this is from Greg Grugan's report at Fox 26 in Houston. He was talking to uh, some folks from Precinct 5 Constable's office. Was County Judge Lena Hidalgo invited by the family or Precinct 5 to be in the vanguard of this important funeral ceremony? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's Precinct 5 Sergeant Roy Gwynn, who says at Tuesday's memorial service, Hidalgo insisted on playing an unrequested, undesired role at the private Galloway funeral, refusing to leave the ceremonial vanguard and take her assigned seat despite his urgent and repeated requests. It, it was almost venomous. She said, I'm not going to sit there. Do you know who I am? I'm the county judge. And she was very upset that I was trying to move her. What she did was wrong. Uh, she completely disrespected the service that we had planned, not only f to honor Corporal Galloway, but for his family and for all of law enforcement. And she did it with no thought at all, no care at all. I'm not disputing uh, Grugan's report there. Uh, he's quoting someone with the constable's office, and they were upset about uh, the, the judge being there. Uh, as I said, it, this has never been something that would have been controversial before. I can't imagine that it would be, Jeremy. And here's the other thing about it. It sort of, um, it sort of reads to me like the kind of pettiness that shouldn't perhaps make its way into the press. I, I see that these uh, folks with the constable's office are pushing it, you know, for a TV reporter to cover it. And he covered it fine. I watched the video. And if you watch the video, you see a lot of Judge Hidalgo there at the funeral for this officer. And she looks just, I mean, she looks respectful to me. She's just standing there. I saw that she was talking to some of the, it looked like talking to some of the family members of people who knew the constable, uh, that this officer who, who was killed. Um, it, it seems like the kind of thing where if you were one of the people who didn't want her there, you would just not want her there, but then you wouldn't necessarily go talk about it in the press because it does seem petty and it seems to make it a political thing when this is really 
about honoring the life of a fallen officer. I can't remember that happening in quite that way before, not to say nothing like this has ever happened, but for the lieutenant governor to, you know, to be blasting Judge Hidalgo and for these folks to be blasting her for being there, I would say this, who cares? Isn't it about honoring the officer whose life was lost? Yeah, it's interesting because, like, you know, uh, the, we at the Houston Chronicle have tried to reach out to Hildago's office on this, and they have been hesitant to talk about it. Uh, and they didn't really kind of give us an official statement, but, you know, certainly made it clear that they didn't want to be, you know, adding to this political fire when this, you mm -hmm. know, it should be a discussion about uh, Charles Galloway's life. You know, it's like, yeah. and, and so they were trying to be respectful. And so they're not even going to try to engage in any of this stuff. So, you know, pa if Patrick and, you know, the constable's office want to take shots at him, she's not going to respond back right now. And so mm -hmm. they kind of have like a free shot at her, which I'm not sure if that's the free shot you want, you know, politically speaking. It just, it looks kind of weird that we're complaining about who was at the funeral rather than really mostly talking about, you know, let's talk about this officer. And what he did, right. you know, I think a lot of people just kind of watching it. And again, you saw it too. It's like, it's hard to see what Lena Hidalgo is doing. It's like we can't hear what's being said back and forth. Right. There's a lot of right. re relying what other people's take on things are. I know from like, and you mentioned this earlier about how like a lot of elected officials find it part of their role. And so it's like, I have no doubt she may have said something that sounded like, you know, I'm the county judge, you know, this is right. part of my role, but like, and, and that could easily, you know, depending on how you heard it, you could hear like, don't you know, I'm the county judge, I'm supposed to be here type of thing. Right. You know, it's like, you could easily mm -hmm. see how that could get lost in the translation. Look, there's a lot of emotion with this. Obviously an officer has, has lost his life. And I think a lot of people are going to be very emotional when they're talking about this and dealing mm -hmm. with it. And so it's not surprising that it would go this way. You just kind of wish it didn't, you know, like you said, it's like, let's just focus on, you know, why they're all there to begin with, you know, which is the officer and not where Lena right. Hidalgo was supposed to be sitting. Right. It's, 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 um, it's to me again, just so petty to have a, to have a back and forth and not even a back and forth. It's just a back. Cause she's not, she's not saying anything back. It's just, yeah. it's, just it, um, it's not even, he said, she said, it's just, he said, Right, because she's not even wanting to fan the flames of this anymore, uh, and so uh, instead of talking about the officer, they're talking about where a certain person was standing, which shouldn't yeah. matter. Yeah, it, it feels awkward to me because you're like, okay, like they're faulting her for showing up to honor this, you know, officer's life, mm -hmm. you know, but they're faulting her for it in a, in a way, you know. You're just like, you know, I don't know. It's like it just seems like uh, if this is a political issue, I can't imagine. You know, this is really going to last more than two minutes <laughs> in yeah, people's right. minds. It, well, as you know, and as as uh, as one Democrat said, um, it, could you imagine what they would say if she had not shown up? Yeah, this sort of this sort of walks the line between those things. They're saying that it's, and I'll I'll just say it this way, and I'll leave it at this. What these folks are saying is that Judge Hidalgo, who's a woman of color, it's fine for her to be there, but she needs to sit in the back. All right, if you enjoy the show, and you know you do. You should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. You can check us out on Spotify. Leave the best review that you can. Tell all your friends about it. It's really, uh, Jeremy, a, uh, a Ponzi scheme to make us number one. You just tell two friends, and they tell two friends, and they tell two friends. You get how it goes. Now, none of you ever make any money off of it, the, the ones who are telling your friends, but Ponzi scheme to keep us number one. That's the way I should say it. Give us the best rating you can. We appreciate it. You should be a subscriber at uh, quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>